we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. Well, good morning. It is always good to gather together in worship. I hope you feel the same way. I hope this isn't wrote to you, just something that you tick off on your calendar. But it's always my prayer that God uses our time singing songs of praise and receiving his word to remind us that we've got to center our lives around Jesus, um, that he is our Lord and King, and uh, hopefully your time of worship has, is always fruitful um, in that way. We have been in the book of Judges now. Uh, this will be our 12th week. Now, next week is our last Sunday in Judges. And we have had a great time, right? Don't y'all agree? Have y'all had a good time in Judges? Yeah, for the most part. Um, we begin a brand new series uh, uh, the first Sunday in September, and we will begin walking through the book of James. But until then, we have a little more to do in uh, Judges. So last week, actually the past several weeks, we've been walking with Gideon. Many of you have probably grown up hearing about Gideon. Gideon was a judge. He was called of God in a particular time to help lead the people um, out from under the oppression of the enemy, the Midianites. And today we are wrapping up his story um, in the book of Judges. Now last week we were reminded, goodness gracious, Gideon did not always make the best decisions. Um, He wasn't all that when it comes to his leadership ability. And we're going to continue following in that vein today as we wrap up his story and look how his life ended. So if you would, if you would stand with me, um, we're going to read verses 28 through 35. Now the book of Judges is kind of looks like here in my Bible. If you have a hard copy of, of the scriptures, I would give you the page number, but it probably wouldn't be exactly where your scriptures are where your Bible is, but I would love for you to follow with me on the screen or in your own Bible. So let's read this together. That is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime. About 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old, and he was buried in the grave of his father Joash at Ophrah in the land of the clan of Abizar. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Barit their god. They forgot the Lord their god, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. You may be seated. So following the victory that God gave Gideon and the 300 men along with the other tribes that Gideon invited to help finish things 
off, after those events, there's a very intriguing invitation, although not a surprising one. In Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, it says this, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. So we have this very intriguing but not surprising exchange, an invitation. Most likely these 300 men that represent various tribes from the people of Israel under Gideon's leadership, which is under the grace of God and giving victory to these 300 men. Uh, they were in awe of what God had done through Gideon, and so it makes perfect sense in their own mind to look to Gideon as the potential ruler for the people of Israel, but not just any kind of rule, right? They said, we want you to rule over us, we want your son to rule over us, and we want your grandson to rule over us. What does that sound like? It was an invitation to be a king, to establish dynastic rule and Israel. They had never had rule or a dynasty or royalty, but yet here they are trying to institute this, not necessarily in the will of the Lord at all, uh, through Gideon. And Gideon has the best response, right? I mean, he gets it right when he says, no, 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 no. We're, we're not going to start this dynastic rule. I'm not going to be your king or ruler, and nor will my son. And he says, you know who's going to rule you? The Lord is. The Lord is going to rule you. But notice this, the next word, I don't know what it is in your translation, but in verse 4 it says, however, I do have one request. And what is Gideon's request? That each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies being Ishmaelites. All wore gold earrings. Verse 25, gladly they replied. They spread out a cloak and each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earring was about 43 pounds. Not including the royal ornaments and pendants. The purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian. Or the chains around the necks of their camels. And so Gideon says, however, I do have a request for you. I, am, I will not take on this role as your ruler. I'm not going to establish dynastic rule through my lineage because the Lord will rule you. He gets that right, but then he says, however, I do expect some form of tribute from you from the spoils that you gathered from the enemies. And of course, they say, gladly, we will gladly do this. Not to mention, Gideon had already accrued from himself all those royal pendants that were on the camels that those Midianite kings were wearing, along with their other jewelry and their royal purple gowns, um, robes. And so Gideon had already accrued that for himself. And so for all sense and purposes, his request of these 300 men, or however many there are at this point, his request of Give me some of the gold from the spoil that you have attained. And I also have 
all the spoil, all dependence from the kings, those Midianite kings. For all sense and purposes, his request looked awfully kingly, didn't it? I mean, he was sounding like a king. A returning army with their spoils would bring tribute to the king. And it looks like Gideon is kind of doing the same thing. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And yet it seems like Gideon, either intentionally or unintentionally, was beginning to assert his role as ruler, even though he had declared, let the Lord rule you. Of course, he doesn't stop there. In verse 27, Gideon commissions a religious artifact to be created. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. And so Gideon takes some of the gold that he received from these fighting men and fashions an ephod. Now, an ephod is a generic term that refers to a religious garment that was adorned by priests during religious practices. It's not the first time we've heard about an ephod. God commissioned Moses to build or make an ephod that the priest would wear during religious functions in the tabernacle. But that's not what's going on here. Uh, We don't know all that the ephod looked like or how he used it, but it's not likely he was duplicating what was already existing in the tabernacle. But nonetheless, Gideon takes this gold and fashions this religious garment and puts it in his hometown. And this is what happens next. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Now again, it was not uncommon for rulers to commission works like these. To establish a hub for cultic practices or religious practices. I mean, we see it when David builds, finally, uh, well, Solomon finished uh, the temple. But when Solomon completes the temple in Jerusalem, it was David's desire for the temple to be Jerusalem to create this political and religious hub. And once the, the temple's completed, they move the Ark of the Covenant and the other religious artifacts into the temple. And David, as king, is saying... I am making Jerusalem the very center and heart of Israel's worship and political life, right? And so it looks like Gideon is doing something similar here. Uh, There's already the tabernacle in Shiloh, a town not too far away, where an ephod already exists and where the priestly line was still intact. And yet, Gideon makes his own religious garment and puts it in his own hometown and creates this new hub and center of worship. We know it becomes a center of worship because of what happens. All of Israel desires and longs for that ephod. Likely they thought of it as some type of oracle of help them see the future. Who knows how it was used, but The scriptures describe it that the people of God prostituted themselves to this thing. They they broke their promises and covenant with the Lord, which they had done for a long time ago, but had made covenant with this object, this religious 
object, and it became a trap for even the whole house of Gideon. And once again, we are, we are seeing Gideon, who had declared, I will not be king, doing something that rulers or kings do. Drawing attention to his own town, creating a new capital, so to speak. And although the ephod had had the appearance of godliness, it had ensnared Gideon's family and all the people. It was a foreshadowing of what would happen in verse 33 that we already read. Verse 33 says, as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal and making Baal Barit their God. Gideon, even though he might have had the best intentions, and I'm not too certain of that. We don't know Gideon's intentions, but the outcome was all the same, that the people's hearts were given to this object, to this town, rather than to the Lord. They broke covenant with God and aligned themselves with idolatrous worship. A king's commission. And so, although Gideon had said the right thing from the beginning, for all practical purposes and every step along the way, it looks like Gideon is acting like a ruler. He's doing things that kings do. Give me tribute. Let me commission and create this religious artifact and make my own hometown the capital, so to speak. He's doing the things that kings do, but it doesn't really stop there. If we read in verse 29, and we already have, it says, Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech. His, even his lifestyle looked like a king. It wasn't common for the everyday man to have that many wives and that many children. He had 70 sons plus X number of daughters. He had concubines, a harem. His life and lifestyle was looking very much like the pagan rulers next door. And so even though he was saying the whole time or from the beginning, hey, let the Lord rule you, let the Lord rule you, he had set himself up as king for all practical Purpose, purposes, so much so that when he has a son born uh, from a concubine, not uh, an Israelite woman, but a woman from a neighboring nation, they name him Abimelech, which is not Hebrew, but essentially is interpreted as my father is king. Let the Lord rule you but I will set myself up as king for all practical purposes. Gideon's actions betrayed a heart that was entangled and ensnared. That's what it looks like to me. That his words didn't match the decisions and choices that he was making as he was living out the rest of his life. And I imagine he had a lot of pressure and expectation from the people to walk into this kind of role. But his words did not match his steps. And we can give him the bit of the doubt, but the result was all 
the same. The people ended up in horrible idolatry and forgetting the Lord. But Gideon's actions betrayed a heart that was entangled and ensnared along with the people. Listen to me just for a moment. There is a kind of sin that always sticks with us. There is often, even in the lives of believers, that particular sin that we just can't shake. And more often than not, we find ourselves ankle deep in the bear trap of that particular kind of sin. It could be, it could be gossip, it could be a drunkenness, it could be discontentedness, it could be complaining or outbursts of anger, it could be any number of those things. But for some reason, we are entangled and ensnared in that particular sin. We may even feel like, gosh, we have really grown in a lot of other areas of our life, but there's this one sin that we can't be... We cannot begin to shake for one reason or another. It rules over us. And we yield to it. And it's this ugly, vicious cycle. And oftentimes we walk into this sin with our eyes wide open. It's not like it sneaks up on us or surprises us and we're tempted by it and we find ourselves falling. No, oftentimes this particular kind of sin, even though we know our heart shouldn't be in that place, we find ourselves walking into it with our eyes wide open. I think that was Gideon. No matter how ugly we find ourselves time and time again, trusting in the promises of that particular kind of sin rather than the promises of Jesus. Uh, John Owen, uh, the great Puritan writer, wrote this. Be frequent in thoughts of faith, comparing Jesus with other beloveds are things that you love, sin, the world, legal righteousness, and preferring Jesus before them, counting them all loss in comparison to him. Or a contemporary writer said it like this, sin seems beloved to us, that kind of sin we can't shake, only when Christ does not. So go ahead and compare your sin to him. Compare their blackness with his light, their shame with his glory, their cruelty with his mercy, their hell with his heaven. We see a Gideon who was ensnared and entangled in idolatry, and he could not shake it, even though he had had this dynamic experience with the Lord his God, and even led his people down that path too. It wasn't a path uncommon to them. But as we look at the life of Gideon, we see ourselves in this too, don't we? Uh, we see ourselves making declarations that Jesus, you will reign, and yet we make decisions and take steps and where we have essentially put ourselves as king and ruler of our own Lives. And what we find out when that actually happens, we're yielding ourselves to that particular sin, that other thing that we cannot walk away from. In Gideon's case, it was idolatry. For us, it could be any number of things that we yield to time and time again. But let me remind you, the people of Israel were kingless. One of the heart's beats of the book of Judges is to inform the reader that the people of Israel were desperate for a righteous king. 
Uh, they were desperate for a godly leader that would point them uh, to God. And Gideon, in every opportunity to do that, rather than creating this ephod and putting it in Ophrah, he could have said, go to Shiloh. Go to Shiloh and encounter our, uh, you know, pray toward Shiloh. That's where the presence of our God presides. Go there. Set your heart there. But no, he didn't do all of that. He had every opportunity. But we have a righteous king. Uh, we don't have to guess who our righteous leader is, who our righteous ruler is. Jesus is our king. We don't have to look anywhere else. And in fact, also, we have a helper. Jesus told his disciples, listen, you're king. I am going to go. And it's better for you that I leave because I am sending you the Holy Spirit, your helper and counselor. So Gideon might not have had a righteous king. He was expected to follow the Lord his God. But listen, we absolutely do in King Jesus, and we have not been left alone. We have the Spirit of God, which helps us along the way in this process of yielding all of our life to his kingship. And so with that in mind, I just want to end our time asking some very practical questions. As you reflect on your own life and compare it to Gideon and how he he made the proclamation that God was king, but he didn't live it. I want to ask some probing, practical questions so that you can kind of evaluate where you are in your own life. Is Jesus ruling in my life? So here's the first question. Are you inviting Jesus to reign? We see in verse 22, the people say, Gideon, will you rule over us? God's heart and intent was for them to say that of the Lord. Would you rule over us once again? You'll be our God and we will be your people. That's what God desired for them, but that's not what he got. They asked Gideon. And sometimes we do the exact same thing, but are you inviting Jesus' reign in your life? Are you going to him? Are you waking up in the mornings? Are you trying to write your heart and center your heart and once again say, Lord, today I invite you to reign in me. Help me to listen to your voice and do what you say. Help me to be obedient to your word. Are you ambitiously inviting Jesus to reign in you, to be king? Are you taking every precaution are you taking every precaution? And what I mean by that is all of us know that until Jesus comes back and we are completely redeemed and all of sin and brokenness is gone and we are fully restored, until that day comes, we all wrestle with sin. That's why the author of Hebrews says you need to shake off all that sin that ensnares and entangles, right? And follow Jesus. We are going to run into briars and entanglement, but are you making every precaution to avoid it? Gideon did not. This idolatrous people, he created an ephod. In all appearances, it looked like this godly, holy thing to do, but it became a snare to his house and to all the people. They, they broke covenant with God and latched onto this thing and exalted this thing. He didn't take precaution. He didn't point them to Jesus. He didn't point them to God. And so my question for us is, are we aware of that kind of sin, especially that particular sin that we have a hard time shaking? Are we taking every precaution to avoid ensnaring ourselves once again? 
You know, every so often, my family will say we're not going to eat sugar, and, I, and I'm just as guilty. But I, if I'm really going to commit to that, I need to stop putting sugar in my grocery cart, right? But sometimes I convince myself, well, I'll just get this, and I'm just going to be really disciplined. It's going to be really disciplined. But what I've done is, is kind of just unwisely placed right in front of my face the temptation that I want to avoid from the very beginning. And what's true of Gideon can be true of us. If we, if we set ourselves up for failure, we're going to fail. If we don't take every precaution to avoid the sin that's in front of us, especially the ones that we know entangle us and ensnare us the most, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. Are you taking every precaution to avoid those things in your life that will trip you up? And if you need someone to help you with that, ask, ask a friend, ask a spouse. But are you taking every precaution? And last, the last question is, are you living the lifestyle of a servant? Gideon began to live a lifestyle of a king. He wasn't called to do that. And it wasn't helpful for the people. He should have been living the life of a judge or a servant, not a king. And so the question for us is, are you living a lifestyle of a servant or of something else entirely? What does a lifestyle of a king look like? In this case for Gideon, as, as, as he was adopting pagan practices, it was probably a number of things. But essentially it was, I'm just going to align myself with people uh, that are going to say exactly what I want to hear. Uh, I'm just going to make my own decisions and do what I want to do. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm just going to reign in my life. That was the lifestyle of Gideon. Are you living the lifestyle of your own personal kingdom or are you living the lifestyle of a servant? You know, Jesus, when he walked the earth, he said, I want you to know that everything that I say and I do, I do because the Father has told me to do it. Jesus said, as a son of God, I'm submitting myself to the authority of my Father. And everything that he says and does, I'm going to do or say. Lifestyle of a servant. I mean, he even modeled that, right? I mean, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said, I want you to do exactly what I do. Are you living the lifestyle of a servant? When Paul would teach his churches, you know what he would say? It blows our minds when we read it on paper, right? Paul says, I want you... To do what I do as I'm really trying and striving to do everything that Jesus has done. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Your calling as a believer is not to rule and reign in your own life. Your calling as a believer, as the church, is to listen to King Jesus and do what he says. And speak the words that he tells us to speak. Are you living the life of a servant? Are you taking every precaution to avoid the sin that you know entangles your life? Are you inviting Jesus to reign? 
Are you doing those things? Don't be entangled and ensnared by being your own ruler. Let Jesus do that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that your son is king. (laughs) Help us to listen and follow him. We confess that um, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to see Jesus clearly and hear his voice through the word. And so, Lord, help us. Help us. And when we see Jesus in your word, when we hear his voice, help us to follow him every step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.